When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abul Samad. So, welcome to the last show, 2017, everybody. You've made it to the end of the year. We have uh, surprisingly survived. Um, maybe it's not so surprising since nobody's sponsoring the show. We're not beholden <laughs> to anybody. Good point. Um, so, yeah, there's uh, a few things going on, of course, that we'll, we'll cover. But uh, first, we'll get to what we're driving. And Sam, what's in your driveway or garage or uh, lean-to? Uh, I had the uh, 2018 Mazda CX-3 Grand Touring all-wheel drive, um, which is uh, Mazda's entry into the burgeoning subcompact crossover segment. Um, and um, in, in a lot of ways, I mean, there, there's there's – Definitely plenty to like about the CX-3, uh, but I would not call it my favorite uh, vehicle in this segment. Um, actually, to be honest, I'm not sure I really have a favorite in the segment. Um, but uh, the you know the, the thing about the CX-3, you know, when you look at it, you know, it's it's actually I quite like the way it looks. You know, it's it's a nice uh, interpretation of uh, Mazda's current design language, their Kodo design language, um, you know, compared to pretty much everything else in the segment. You know, it's got a, a distinctly sporty, you know, distinctly Mazda look to it. Um, you know, it doesn't have any of the weirdness, you know, of a Nissan Juke or, you know, even kind of the upcoming um, Hyundai Kona. Um, but it's it's definitely got. It, it's got you know some of those same characteristics you find in other current Mazda products, uh, with you know kind of the more vertical, almost lean forward kind of grille, and then you know the A pillars, you know the base of the A pillars is set back relatively far compared to where it is on a lot of current vehicles, you know so the the windshield isn't quite as slow, you know, and what that does is it gives you a proportion that you know makes the car you know it gives it more of a longer hood proportion that that makes it look more like a rear drive vehicle, longitudinal right. engine rear drive vehicle, even though it is transverse um, front wheel or all wheel drive, you know, front, a transverse engine uh, powertrain. Um, and the the other thing, you know, it's a, it's kind of also, you know, the sporty look is kind of amplified by the lower roof line, you know, compared to, you know, say the Honda HRV, it's about, uh, about two and a half inches lower than the HRV. Um, the, the downside is that even though you know the dimensions, you know it's within it's like less than three quarters of an inch shorter than an HRV, you know, and and all of the you know the main competitors in this segment are all 
you know, within an inch or two of each other in overall dimensions, you know, uh, about 168, 169 inches long, uh, 101, 102 inch wheelbase, roughly. Um, the Compared to a lot of the competitors, the CX-3 feels decidedly cramped inside. Um, well, that's that's the thing, right? With um, it's the sporty sort of classic dimensions, right? The long hood, short deck kind of thing. It looks great and uh, it is not space efficient no it's it's not um and and particularly you know in this case you know when you sit inside you know when you look at it from the outside it it's not quite as apparent until you get inside and you realize how high the belt line is so you know the the cx3 has a relatively short greenhouse and you sit relatively low within the body shell so you know the belt line is up you know, above, you know, basically level with the top of my shoulder. Um, so you feel like you're sitting down inside this. That's kind of, yeah, that's high. I mean, you're, yeah. <laughs> I say this as a fun size person, you're taller than I am. So I mean, I'm, I'm five ten. Yeah. You know, so, so that, that's yeah. high. That, I mean, when you sit yeah. in that, like the door comes up to what, like your, your ears. <laughs> right. Almost. Uh, yeah. I mean, we, we went out to dinner um, last week with, uh, with our daughter and her, and her boyfriend you know, and they were sitting in the back seat. My daughter's about five foot four. Um, and she, you know, I mean, at five ten, you know, it's about average height, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, and I I even pulled up the seat a little bit compared to where I normally have it. And, you know, it was still tight in the back seat for for her and her boyfriend. So, you know, it's it's quite snug inside. Um, you know, and you know, compared to you know, the HRV, you know, is is based on the the fit, the Honda Fit, which you know is the the king of of packaging when it comes to to small vehicles, and you know, so the HRV, according to uh, the EPA specs, uh, it's got a hundred cubic feet of cabin uh, passenger volume and another twenty three, I think, cubic feet of of cargo volume. By comparison, the CX three is eighty eight cubic feet of passenger volume and sixteen feet of cargo volume which you know is not a whole lot so it it feels small yeah well the 16 cubic feet of cargo volume sounds good like that's a mid-sized trunk that's yeah, a honda Accord trunk yeah yeah but, the cargo space is fine but it is the passenger space that's that's kind of the issue yeah well and i even wonder like actually how useful that cargo space is um it, it's i mean you know it because it's a it's a utility you know with a hatchback it's it's fine you know it's um, it, you know, it doesn't have any odd shapes or anything, you know, so you can, you can put, you know, plenty of stuff in there. You can put, you know, half a dozen grocery bags or, you know, probably three, I didn't put any uh, suitcases in there, but you could probably put, you know, three or maybe four rollerboard bags in there, uh, without too much difficulty. So that's, you know, the cargo space is, is not really an issue. I, I don't, I wouldn't say, but, um, the passenger volume definitely is, um, you know, the, the driving dynamics, you know, on the other hand, yeah, I mean, it's it's a Mazda and it, it feels like one, you know, so it's got it's got decent steering feel um, and, uh, you know, it's got uh, Mazda's uh, G vectoring uh, torque vectoring system on there, that, you know, with all wheel drive. Right. So, so to vector, does it just use the ABS hardware? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it just uses the brakes to redirect some torque from one side to the other as needed. Um, I didn't really get a chance to play with that too much because right, you know, the, the day <laughs> no. after we got it, you know, it started snowing. Uh, That's the and, perfect time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. So we got our, our big uh, pre-Christmas snowstorm um, with, you know, as I had that. Uh, but, it, you know, it worked fine in the snow. Um, 
the the only powertrain that's available in here is the two liter sky active engine uh which uh you know it's normally aspirated it's only 146 horsepower um which is you know a little more than what the honda has um you know, I mean, it's not particularly powerful, but it's it's sufficient, um, and it does have a six-speed regular six-speed automatic. Um, you know, so that feels better. It feels better than the powertrain in the CRV. That the the real weak or the HRV rather. The real weak point in the HRV is is the powertrain. Um, yeah, you know, and the the powertrain in this one, you know, is not particularly dynamic, but it's it's fine, it's adequate, um, and it got decent fuel economy. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was cold here, you know, right. all week that I had it, you know, so you know, down into the single digits a lot of the times, and it averaged like twenty six miles per gallon, so that's that's fine, um, you know, and and the starting price for the base front wheel drive uh, CX three Sport, you know, is about twenty one thousand. Uh, which is, you know, it's competitive with the rest of the segment. Uh, fully loaded, like the one I had, you know, comes to about twenty nine and a half, including Man. delivery. Cars um, are is, expensive. Yeah, you know, again, you know, it's it's competitive, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's affordable. Hmm. I mean, it's just the way all new vehicles are now. So, you know, it's. Uh, you know, if if it's you know for a single person or or a couple, you know it's it's probably fine. Uh, you know the and you know with that that twenty nine thousand dollar price point, you know you get things like a moonroof, uh, adaptive cruise control, lane keeping, um, you know, um, the uh, blind spot monitors, uh, navigation, uh, heated seats, and thankfully a heated steering wheel, which have, I, I, I definitely appreciated. And that is nice. It's, it feels so. I. I I always joke about it when I'm telling people about it, you know, like it feels kind of like a first world sort of thing. Like, Oh, you, you got to get the, the heated wheel, but if it's yeah, available, it's three degrees outside yeah, and getting in the car in the morning, you it's know, nice. <laughs> oh yeah. It's you really know, keep, nice. Keeping your, keeping your fingers warm for those first couple of minutes until the engine heats up and starts to generate some heat, uh, you know, into the cabin, uh, you know, it makes a huge difference. Right. Because none of us are using remote starters because that's wasteful. So exactly. You well, start and, from and cold. And the CX3 doesn't offer one anyway. Right. So. And you're not you're supposed to – not that I followed this advice. I remote started the Jeep this morning, so it was warm <laughs> for my wife. Um, but no, uh, starting with a remote starter is wasteful. It gets zero miles to the gallon. And uh, if you have a short commute, it's actually pretty hard on your engine. So anyway, that's my yeah, list. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, it, it's, actually, it's actually generally a pretty bad thing to do. Yeah. And, and the thing is, your engine will actually warm up a lot faster if it's under Way load faster, driving. Yeah. Than yeah. if it's just sitting there idling, um, so you know you'd have to run it. You actually have to run the engine for a pretty long time. The the one advantage you can get with uh, remote start, you know, is if it's tied. You know, if you've got heated seats and it's tied to that, right. you know, it can actually warm up the seats at least. Um, but most cars don't do that anyway. So you know, well, so this is actually a total tangent, but it makes me think because we're going to we're seeing more and more automakers go to forty eight volt systems. Mm-hmm. That makes something like a resistive electric heater, an auxiliary heater, a lot more possible. Yeah, you just have you have more voltage. It's going to need less current to make some. I mean, you know, a resistive heater is still going to generate need some current, but um, it just it makes the math work a little bit better. Uh, yeah, and and we we will probably start seeing stuff like that. You know, I mean, part part of the advantage of going to forty eight volt systems is that you know now you can start to electrify these ancillary systems. Like you can have uh, electric AC and electric heating. Uh, or at least an auxiliary electric heater 
to complement the the right. engine heat because I mean, and we can uh, we actually had a question from uh, from a listener uh, that we can touch on a little bit. Uh, but you know, basically the um, you know if you've got an engine um, that's going to run, you might as well use the heat from that. But you can certainly have a smaller electric heater to to help get things going. You know, when it's really cold out like it is right now. Yeah. Um, and and that's something you can do with a 48 volt system that you can't do with uh, the traditional um, you know straight up ICE. Yeah, I mean, well, you you can, but it's just just way it's way less practical. Um, well, it, it's it's actually not not even particularly possible because you know you're kind of I mean right now with 12 volt systems you know with all the stuff we have in in vehicles now you know 12 volt electrical system can only put out about um, two to two and a half kilowatts of power. Right. And you know that's, and and you don't you don't have much battery capability, um, you know. So you don't you don't really have you know the you know the electrical power in the vehicle, and you don't have enough battery. But with a forty eight volt system, you know now they're putting uh, you know lithium ion batteries, you know, with about a half a kilowatt hour of capacity in there, and you've got you know ten to twelve kilowatts of power available, so you can actually drive an electric heater to do things like that. Yeah, I mean that would be super cool. I. Remember with the Volvos, one of the things I because they didn't have remote start and, and I'm not a fan of remote start. But one of the things that would have been nice was like in Europe, you can get like the Eberschbacher, uh parking heaters um, mm-hmm. where they, they they tie into the fuel line and they they basically have a, they use a small amount of fuel. They combust a small amount of fuel and they they pre-warm the coolant. Uh, so the coolant is warm when you start the car and that makes your your engine warm up much faster um and it also means you have heat right away and it's it's much more sort of environmentally conscious and and efficient uh super or you just get a block heater well yeah, yeah block heaters work too um the eberschbacher is like super super expensive to get in the u.s they're they're a lot more common in in europe um but it's it's a thing that exists it would be great if more normal cars uh, had something like a little auxiliary, sort of like a preheater that's just sort of electrically driven. It 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 could give you the advantage. Like one of the nice things about EVs and hybrids now, the plug-ins is you can precondition the interior. That'd be great for all cars. <laughs> you know, it'd be nice to yeah, make that possible. Absolutely. Um, so anyway, I'm sorry to get us on a tangent, but that was that was my oh my thought. I hey, that's what we do here. Yeah. Um, so, uh, in terms of expensive cars or inexpensive cars, I was driving the, uh, the Hyundai Accent, the new 2018 Accent, and, uh, it's actually surprisingly affordable. It starts at like 15,000 and it's, it's a lot of car. Um, I was very impressed with, with the Accent. It, it's sort of in, in past years, uh, it was kind of like, yeah, you, you shrug about it, but like, yeah, it's a, it's a subcompact. It's a Hyundai. It's going to have, you know, pretty, pretty decent value. Um, for 2018, it's been redone. More high strength steel in the the structure. It rides really well. It uh, it's gone up a size class actually. Uh, so it feels very spacious for a subcompact because it's actually a compact. Um, but it's I mean Hyundai continues to just re- do a really good job with cars. Man, this is this is a great car. Uh, was it? Are they still offering a hatchback or is it just a sedan now? It's just a sedan. Um, okay, but it's you know it's got uh, a pretty roomy interior. Front and rear seat room is is not bad. Uh, it's it goes down the road in a pretty refined fashion. It's certainly it's just not going to fool you that it's like a, a Genesis G eighty, but it's uh, <laughs> uh, it it it's composed. Uh, 
it's not the most quiet. I guess that's really the only kind of complaint I could make about it is that it's it's a little loud sort of at highway speed on certain surfaces. But, you know, otherwise, it has a pretty stiff structure. It rides well. It handles well. Um, the steering actually feels really precise. It's actually sort of opposed to the, the Corolla I had last week, the Corolla S um, or SE. This car's fun to drive. And it's it's not any kind of sport package. It is the limited, I think. So it has all of the bells and whistles. Um, but it's it's just generally a good car, sort of at its core. It feels like it was you know somebody sweat the details and and drove it with an understanding of of what good cars drive like, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and tuned it that way. That's so, always handy. Yeah, I'm I'm very impressed because Hyundai's in the past also had been sort of you know spec sheet heroes. You know they have everything and. They drive okay, but it's not anything that you actually enjoy driving. I actually, I quite like the accent. It's it's good, and it, it doesn't feel like a penalty box uh, in limited trim. It's got all kinds of stuff, you know, heated heated seats, no heated wheel, <laughs> um, but it does have nav. And and Hyundai's infotainment is again, it's it's good. You know, they are in this sweet spot right now, um, and I feel like every time I have one of their cars, I'm, I'm just like sort of effus- effusively praising it. I can't even get the word out. Uh, but it's just it's a solid effort in a in a class that everybody kind of shrugs about. But when you consider the competition is the Fiesta, um, I, I guess the Yaris, uh, but the, the Yaris is actually the Mazda 2, right? Or is that the Yaris IA? Uh, that's the IA is the Mazda 2. So do they the have Yaris is a pure Toyota. So do they have then two competitors in the same class or did they kill the Yaris Pre- sedan? Um. I think they only have the Yaris hatchback now because okay. uh, the IA is only available as a sedan. OK, so that, that makes sense. Um, I haven't driven the uh, the Yaris IA. I would assume that it's it's tighter. Uh, you know, it's, it's definitely it measures up if you compare the spec sheets. It's smaller. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the IA, you know, I, mean, I drove the IA, you know, when they launched it as a Scion, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, like about nine months or so before they decided to kill Scion, you know, they launched the IA and the IM. <laughs> um, and, you know, the, the IA, you know, is, is a Mazda two sedan, you know, with, a, an unattractive grill, uh, <laughs> to put it mildly. And it, you know, it drives like a Mazda, yeah, you know, which is a good thing. Uh, there's nothing at all wrong with that. No. And, and you know, the, the Fiesta also, there's, there's yeah. nothing really wrong with the Fiesta, uh, it's, it's backseat. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, I was carting kids around in it all, all week. My, my kids are, uh, nine and 12. I didn't have really any, um, leg room complaints. Uh, there was a, a comment here and there when, when we were loaded with like, you know, uh, extracurricular gear that it feels a little tight, but you know, this is a, it's a solid sedan for just, you know, like a runabout or, you know, even the CX-3, like you were talking about, it's it's a little small. Well, it is and it isn't, right? Like, it's not necessarily the car you're going to grow your family with, but... Right. I mean, it, it depends. It depends on your particular situation, right. your lifestyle. You know, what's I mean, for a lot of people, CX-3 is a is a great option. You know, if you don't have young kids, you know, especially if you if you don't have kids that are still in booster seats or in child seats that are going to be up closer to the back of your seat. Right. And, you know, kicking you in the back all the time, then, you know, then then the CX-3 or, you know, the accent, you know, would probably be a fine choice. Yeah. Well, and I think they've probably done the math about how. Most people use the cars and they make the front seat rather accommodating for you know normal humans. So one or two mm-hmm. people could be pretty comfortable in it. 
when you're carting a fully loaded car of all adults, that's kind of it's weird to say it, but that's to me, that seems like an edge case. Like, that's not something that happens all the time. That, no, actually, that's that's absolutely true, especially here in the U.S. You know, most most people drive alone or with one other person most of the time. So maybe they've done the math and we should all just buy subcompact everything. <laughs> not going to happen. Well, <laughs> well, that, you know, the, the problem is, you know, they've done the math with the way most people use use the cars all the time. Most of the time. Yeah. But the problem is. What customers do is they buy for their worst case use case, you know, and that's why, you know, you see people driving around in big SUVs alone. You know, they they may need to haul, you know, haul the family, you know, you know, from time to time or tow something from time to time, but they don't need it most of the time. But, you know, they, they they buy it because, you know, they may. They may need to choose one vehicle or, you know, one of two vehicles in the household. And so, you know, they have to account for that situation, you know, and that's that's one of the potential advantages, you know, in the future, you know, for using mobility as a service, you know, um, or if you've got other options, you know, then, you know, you can you can start to, you know, right size, you know, for a particular ride, you know, use a smaller car most of the time and then you know, get a bigger vehicle, you know, only when you need it instead of having to haul it around all the time. Yeah. I mean, that's, that sounds like the, the drive program from Volvo, right? That just, you see basically, or, or the Porsche, whatever it's called. Porsche passport. Yeah. Yeah. Where you, you get, you know, you get the car for every day and if you need something bigger, yeah. Okay. It's in the so fleet. You get, you get a Cayman for every day or a Boxster for every day and then you get a Cayenne on the weekends. I, this is a. I'm sure that somebody's sense, right? Yeah, and I'm sure that somebody's done the actual sort of psychological study because it's a comfort thing. It's I want to know that I can if I have to. It's yeah, exactly. It, it, but you never have to, <laughs> you know. I'm like you're paying for this thing that you like. By the time you need it, it it's either like it's out of service or it's broken or yeah, okay, maybe that once or twice a year it's it's there. But I don't know the the downsides to having that capability available at all times are, are just a huge financial hit and efficiency. Oh, yeah. And I, I don't know, we don't make rational decisions. We are, we're emotional. Oh, no, well, hu- hum- yeah. Human humans are definitely not rational creatures. I mean, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I personally like the command of the road feeling you get from a giant SUV. I just hate feeding it. Yeah. And so turning corners. <laughs> so the, the accent you had was a uh, limited. I believe so. Yeah. And how, how much did that one come to? So it didn't have a price on the Monroni, but so the it starts at um, it starts at like fifteen for the the base accent, not the fancy limited. Um, I mean, the limited is actually only eighteen nine, right? Uh, so it doesn't have like just. I mean, that's 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 cheaper than you know almost anything in you know in a compact car that you can get these days yeah it and that was my my surprise was like this is very affordable and it's loaded with everything uh and you know the the 1.6 liter four doesn't feel underpowered it it actually it feels quite lively uh with the six-speed auto and that was you know my other complaint about the, the the corolla was like it just feels gutless this has a smaller engine that actually makes more power but it doesn't feel gutless. It, it feels spirited. So I was uh, again uh, impressed with that. So yeah, it starts at eighteen. Yeah, well, actually, 
and and the the limited includes pretty much everything except you know for a few um you know a few um accessories like you know carpeted floor mats and things like that you know uh, that if you tacked on every single option you know then you'd be looking you know another five or six hundred bucks but uh basically you know under twenty thousand dollars delivered for an accent limited is <laughs> that's a that's a great deal yeah like there are no option packages so yeah um yeah and it did have it has the i think it has the carpet formats which are like 125 bucks or something so yeah so i mean you know and this is a it's a sharp looking little car yeah it it's it looks like a larger car um it feels like a larger car it it has a lot of that spirit of cars of the past that we've we've really liked um you know it, it almost strikes me as sort of uh it's got some of that e30 soul in it obviously that's that's a stretch to a certain degree but it just it has that honesty about the way it goes down the road like it 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 just feels like a car that was just well designed and carefully put together um you know there's some things you miss out on it doesn't have dual zone climate control or you know the heated wheel it doesn't have uh dynamic cruise or i i don't think it had like blind spot monitoring and stuff like that either but i, I you know I didn't miss it. I, I think those are selling points that they could easily add to it uh, as the model sort of continues. Um, so it does have forward collision warning. Okay. Uh, you know, and it, you know, it's got uh, blue link with three years of service. You got a sunroof. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, what else? It's a really yeah. nice car. It doesn't have leather. Yeah. It has cloth seats. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I just, I just did the build and price and tacked on all of the available uh, <laughs> options. So you got and the thirty dollars first aid kit. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so with with every available option, it comes to twenty thousand two hundred eighty dollars. Yeah. So um, that's that's an amazing deal. Yeah, and that's that's where I, I'm the most and impressed. It, and it does have automatic temperature control. It's just not dual zone. Right. Right. That's that's true. Yeah. Um, it it's I mean you know, the ergonomics are good and you know like the Fiesta certainly is very very good to drive and it feels really solid but its ergonomics make me crazy yeah <laughs> this is it and it's it's you know a little loud and it's definitely ugly this is a good looking little car it's comfortable you miss out on a little bit of the functionality because it's not a hatch that's right you know the, the trunk that, is and that's, that's the one thing you know in a small car i would always prefer a hatch yeah um to a sedan you know just because you know i mean most most modern you know smaller cars have decently sized trunks, but you, you know, in a sedan, you end up with such a small opening to actually get stuff in there that you lose a lot of the utility. Yeah. And I'd rather, I'd rather have a hatchback, you know, where, you know, I have that nice big opening where I can put some bigger items in there when I need to. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't find the, the trunk is like, yes, it's a limit, but it's not, um, it's not limited, uh, sort of aggressively. So I guess mm -hmm. is, is what I'm saying. Like, it's uh, it's it's not like my Volvos were with this tiny little mail slot opening, and the trunk here may right. actually be larger. Um, I, it feels like it's about a twelve cubic foot or thirteen cubic foot trunk, which is hey, that's that's decent for for what it is. I'd be surprised if it's smaller. Uh, see, I think I saw it was here is like thirteen. There, so that's luggage thirteen point seven cubic feet. That's a decent sized trunk. That's almost mid size. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that that's actually as big as a lot of midsize cars. Uh, that's that's about the same as what you get in a Tesla Model S. Is it really uh, the Model, Model S has a uh, trunk that Model small? Three, I mean, oh, yeah, Model Three, Model Three, not the S, the three. Yeah. Uh, uh, so one yeah. of the topics we didn't actually have on the list is Tesla, but 
No, I don't want to talk about Tesla yeah. this week. There's some interesting stuff going on with the uh, the sort of the the reporting about it. Uh, nonsense. Just go, yeah. go find it on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> the guys at Autonocast actually do a really good job um, <laughs> digging into that. Uh, and, you know, and Ed, Ed Niedermeyer is working on a book about Tesla. So. Oh, that'll be fascinating. We should have Ed. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Alex has said he'd come on. We just haven't made it happen. So we'll get to that in 2018. Um, yes. Speaking of getting among, to things. Among the many other things on our to-do list. Yeah, of course. Um, do we want to get to topics? Yeah, let's do that. All right. Um, so I, I will start this one with a story. Uh, it, it has nothing to do with the actual story. But um, so I was driving to work a few months ago and uh, I travel on on Route 2 in Massachusetts. It goes across sort of the top of the state. Um, it, and you get into the Concord Mass area. It gets very congested. So I, being the smart guy, go off onto the back roads. Well, Concord and uh, Lincoln are the two towns that are right there. They have a lot of very rich people in them, and they don't like people cutting through. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I... You don't say. Yeah. So me, smart guy, I'm like, I'm on Sandy Pond Road going around one of the reservoirs in Concord. It's it's lovely. It's, I actually like being on the back roads anyway, but I get pulled over and I'm like, uh, yes, good morning. And he's like, this is, a, you know, you, can, you can't go this way. There's no right turn onto this road. They put up a new sign that day. And they were just pulling people over to let them know because so many of us now are, are using our nav systems and our, you know, our apps like ways to find the routes around the traffic that you wind up on these back streets. And you're like, I have no idea where the hell I am. <laughs> so I'm just going to follow this thing. It looks clear. And, uh, you know, this has been happening to um, to a town in New Jersey uh, to the point where they just got fed up with it. And they're like, you know what, we're going to make our roads private uh it's Le- leonia new jersey uh, i'm, I'm kind of skimming the story but that's generally the gist like it's happening everywhere yeah, and, and stuff and stuff like this has happened in california as well uh you know especially around the la area where there's you know really heavy traffic ba- basically you know in, any place where there's a lot of traffic you know we've increasingly been seeing these kind of complaints over the last year or two um you know because <clears throat> a lot of people like to use ways because one, one of the advantages of using ways in particular you know is that uh you know, it, it, the, the app collects probe data from users, you know, so, um, every, every few seconds or every couple of minutes, um, you know, from, you know, if you're using, if you're using these apps, um, it will actually transmit your current average speed up to the Waze servers and it aggregates that data and, and, you know, then feeds that back to, to the entire user community. So that's why, um, you know, when you look at the, if you look at the map, you'll see, you know, if you're stuck in traffic, you'll see the road you're on will, will turn to red. You know, if it's, if everything's moving along smoothly, it'll go green, you know, or yellow. Um, and the way they do that is by collecting this data. Uh, and then, you know, if you're, you know, if there's, if there's a backup, you know, along your route, if you've, if you've set a destination and there's a backup ahead, you know, it'll, it'll say, Hey, you know, there's a faster route possible. Do you want to take it? And, you know, it'll, so it might take you off the, off the main drag or off the main highway, you know, onto, you know, through, you know, through some, uh, neighborhoods or, or whatever, you know, that it may be nominally slower, you know, based on the speed limit, but because there's less traffic there, you know, you can actually get to your destination faster. Well, you know, of course, you know, people living in these areas don't don't like suddenly seeing a whole bunch more cars on their streets. And so they're they're starting, you know, starting to get a backlash against that. And, you know, this is this is actually something that's going to be um, even more of a problem going forward as we get into, you know, 
automated mobility services, you know, because they're going to be operating the same way, you know, I mean, if to, to maximize the efficiency of these systems, these services, you know, they're going to want to set them, set up the logistics algorithms to take the fastest route to get you from wherever you are to where you want to be, um, you know, so they can pick up more riders. Um, and that's, I think there's, a lot of people are going to be complaining about that. If they're complaining about stuff like Waze now, they're going to be complaining even more, you know, in the future. Well, it's almost like a, a symptom too. Like, uh, yeah, I understand you have to do something immediately to try to get the traffic load on your roads down a bit, but this it's just a band aid. Really what you need to do is incentivize getting off the roads. Yes, Absolutely. Get people into, you know, various forms of transit or, you know, whether it's buses or trains or or whatever it might be. Yeah. And I mean, transit's a thing that could or, happen. You know, actually, you know, make it so that people can afford to live closer to where they work so they don't have to have, you know, hour and a half, two hour commutes every day. Yeah. I mean, that that would be great. There's no way I could afford to live in Concord or Lincoln, Massachusetts. Um, yeah, or, you know, or a lot of the people that live, for example, in, or that work in Silicon Valley, you know, simply can't afford to live there. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, this is this is something, you know, I saw an article several months back, you know, um, I think it was in uh, the, from the San Francisco Chronicle or maybe the, the Mercury News, you know, about um, so-called super commuters, you know, people that the cost of living in, in some of these you know areas, you know, between San Francisco and San Jose has gotten so ridiculously high that people that, you know, had previously lived in that area for decades, you know, have had to move out to places like Stockton and Fresno and commute, you know, three or four hours a day, you know, to get to their jobs because they don't make enough money to live where they work, you know, and it's just, it's insane. Yeah. I mean, my, my commute is uh hour and a half easily. Um, so I'm, I'm spending three, three hours a day in the car, which is ridiculous. Yeah, uh, that's, that's, that's nuts. Yeah. Well, I mean, my, my commute is a minute and a half tops. I mean, the, the, yeah, I, if I have to make a stop at the bathroom along the way. To but so that's you. the thing, too. It, it drives me crazy is there's this uh, it is it's 2017. There's really no need for me to just go to the office to get coffee and like kibitz. Um, which is sort of the first 40 minutes of the day, right? You're just, you're getting things set up. You're answering emails. You're not really super productive. Uh, if I were to basically just go sit down and log in at 7.30 in the morning when I normally leave, I'd be productive for at least an hour and a half before, <laughs> you know, before that 9 a.m. sort of, you know, chat and we could host chat another way. We have Slack and, and, you know, it's different for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I do with my colleagues. You know, yeah. we're, you know, we're on Skype for business and, and email and, you know, whatever other uh, platforms we're using, um, you know, and you know, communicate, you know, throughout the day. Um, and I, I have, I have as many productive conversations with my coworkers that are scattered around the U S and around the world as I ever did working, you know, in an office. Yeah, because let's be clear, most of the chat in the office is sort of an escapist kind of thing where you're like, you're not chatting about work. You're, yeah. <laughs> you're chatting about other things. I mean, to uh, sort of get uh, unless, you know, un un unless you're, you know, working in a manufacturing environment, you know, where you you actually have to keep up with the line, you know, and, and you you're physically forced to, you know, to do whatever it is your job is. I mean, if you're if you're not, you know, that if you're not working that sort of job, 
the reality is, you know, I'll, a significant portion of every day in an office is wasted. Yeah. Oh, and it's uh, like, it's inefficient, right? You've got office space that's, you know, heating and cooling and just parking the cars and yeah, I can go on and on. Um, I'm not going to solve it here. It's just, it's too bad, but it's, you know, some, sometimes I do have to be in the office and, and when I do the commute sucks. Um, and the biggest issue I can see with this sort of move by, uh, Leona in New Jersey is, um, how they're legally going to make their roads private? Like that's a a thing they have well, to. Well, I mean, what I guess what they're doing in in New Jer- in this town in New Jersey is they're issuing uh, tags to residents, you know, that they hang from their mirrors. Right, but and like, if you don't have one of these tags, now is that legal? That's that's an entirely different see, situation. Yeah, I mean, that's my question. Is like, unless the roads are actually private. Um, which means that I don't know how you're going to pay for you know like maintenance, repair, salting, sanding, plowing whatever else they do in New Jersey. Um, I, do, do they actually do any of that in New Jersey? I, they, it depends on where they are, I guess. <laughs> like there are parts of Jersey that don't actually get much winter. Um, but well, it, I mean, it, you know, once, once Chris Christie is out of office, you know, you can just have him, you know, man some, some barricades <laughs> um, at the, the various local streets, you know, and, and check the tags. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, I'm just going to just back away slowly from that. <laughs> <laughs> uh it just it makes me makes me curious like how what what do you do for the person who doesn't have a tag but who's not like a regular cut through you know driver like just sort of somebody who's driving through the town to get to something else you know yeah yeah and and the and the reality is i mean no matter where you go you know there there are going to be you know People that for for whatever reason, if they're going to visit a friend or, you know, they might be going to a doctor's appointment or going to some business that's along one of these streets. You know, there, there are reasons why people who don't live on those streets would be on those streets on any given day. And it, it you know, given the, the fact that, you know, a lot of, you know, I mean, these streets are not typically not paid for entirely by you know, the local residents, you know, they're paid for with, uh, you know, unless it happens to be a private road, you know, that a developer built, you know, and, and controls, um, you know, and maybe a homeowners association maintains them. You know, if, if that's the case, that's, that's something else entirely. But if it's a public road, you know, there's, there's almost always federal and state tax dollars that went into the construction and maintenance of that road. And, you know, to prohibit somebody who doesn't live on that street from driving on that street. You know, I mean, that that just seems crazy. Right. It's like, well, OK, fine. You, you, you can give your money back. It turns out Leonia is in Bergen County. Uh, so it's it's kind of like a suburb of uh, Manhattan. Um, so maybe oh, so they're more entitled, more entitled. Yeah, I was going to say maybe there's um, a very strong economic um, <laughs> A very, very strong uh, group of homeowners um, who just don't want them cutting through their backyards. And I, I can understand it. You know, like I, I get it. Um, I don't I don't know what the the best, you know, way to solve it is other than like, you got to get the cars off the road. Even if you improve sort of the federal highways um, where, you know, you're adding lanes or something to interstates. Those lanes are going to be filled as soon as you open them. Um, so there's there's really just not a, a great sort of solution for it. 
there's multiple solutions and and uh, you know you know <laughs> going back to my previous reference to uh the current governor of new jersey uh, yes chris uh, christie's it, george washington yeah, it, it turns out leonia is uh, right next to fort lee and and basically sits uh you know right by the entrance to the uh, or the new jersey side of the uh, george washington bridge which if i'm not mistaken isn't that the one where they closed off a bunch of lanes uh yeah the, yeah. the, the, uh, the bridge gate, the whole bridge gate thing. Right. Um, so it, yeah, okay. Now, <laughs> now it makes sense. Uh, I mean, it, no wonder these people are so pissed. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I can understand, um, congestion and it isn't, it, it is an issue. And, yeah, you know, I mean, no, nobody likes congestion, but yeah. you know, this does not seem like the, the right solution to the problem. At the very least, it will spur a uh, conversation. And yeah. and hopefully debate and sort of thoughtful discussion and solutions. I, yep. I given that they had the GWB scandal, I'm not sure that any <laughs> of that is going to happen. But, but and it would be no different in Massachusetts too. We'd have constant battles and political back and forth, and you guys have it. Well, I mean, the Ambassador Bridge is a perfect kind of. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, we've we've <laughs> we've had a battle going on here for. 20 years about adding a second uh, bridge crossing uh, between Detroit and Windsor, um, you know, because as it, as it turns out, it, it's possible for a private business to own an international uh, bridge crossing between two countries. Uh, who would who would have thunk it? Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, local uh, uh, Detroit uh, trucking magnate uh, Manny Maroon and his uh, family business own the Ambassador Bridge. And so there's there's currently um, there there's an effort to actually build uh, a publicly owned bridge that also spans it because there's too much traffic at the Ambassador Bridge. Yeah, well, and I wish that the folks that again, another tangent, I wish the folks that are sort of proponents of privatizing um, interstates and highways would look at that situation. And there's other situations around the country where other stretches of highway have become privatized. It's not good. It's that's just not that, because the improvements don't get made. There's just not enough borrowing power, um, you, you know, to, to actually sort of fund those improvements, regardless of whether it's, it's sort of a profitable enterprise, you know, interstate highways exist for a couple of reasons. One of them is to move, you know, people and cargo. Another is for <laughs> military mobility. And we've yes. been we've been very lucky that we we haven't been attacked on our our own soil. But you will quickly understand if there is something that happens where we have to mobilize the national guard or the the actual like military. I it, I don't want to offend anybody who's in the guard. The guard is the actual military. You know, but you know what I'm sta- saying, like you know, army, navy, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, those those highways are like you are off the road, and those highways are there to move. The military and that was one of the experiences that came from from world war ii looking at how efficiently uh the autobahn and and germany's highway system was able to move things around um that's why we had the eisenhower interstate act of 1956 and it's like i'm geeking out a little bit so i'm just gonna stop yeah. and just say no, like, <laughs> no, but you're, you're absolutely right though i mean there there are you know there's a lot of um very valid reasons you know for why the public um, you know, and taxpayer dollars fund a lot of this infrastructure because, you know, it's there, it's, it's needed, you know, for, for both for businesses and for government operations, you know, to function, you know, we need that infrastructure and, you know, somebody has got to pay for it and, you know, it's privatizing. It is, I, I've never felt was necessarily the right solution to that problem. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's, I mean, let's move on to a lighter note. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, SoftBank uh, this week or the other day, um, you know, they, they've actually <laughs> I love, been. I love how we go for a lighter note and we talk about Uber, who we love to beat up with. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, oh, well. so, yeah. Anyway, SoftBank, uh, giant uh, Japanese uh, investment fund, uh, has been in negotiations for quite a few months now to buy a stake in Uber. Um, and you know, part it was it was a two part deal. Part of it was they were going to invest another billion dollars, um, you know, into new shares of Uber, but they were also going to do a tender offer uh, to uh, buy existing shares from early investors. Um, you know, so, you know, that includes, you know, a lot of the existing VCs that were, that had money in Uber, uh, as well as, you know, some of the early seed investors, uh, like our, our former boss, uh, Mr. Jason Kalkanis. Um, and, um, uh, you know, so they, it, it, the part of the problem was, you know, Uber or rather SoftBank, um, and, and Uber's new management, you know, wanted to kind of minimize the ability for former CEO Travis Kalanick to influence the future direction of the company. Um, and it took a long time, you know, months of negotiations before they finally came to a deal. And, you know, the, the other interesting thing about this, you know, the, the tender offer, um, the, the shares that, uh, uh, SoftBank wanted to buy, you know, up to 20% of the company, um, was at a price uh, that valued the company at uh, just $48 billion, which compared to their prior fundraising round in early 2016, um, that one priced the company at nearly $70 billion. So, you know, this was a pretty big hit uh, compared to the, the previous value of the company. Um, so, you know, it, it's interesting, you know, uh, I'll, I'll be very curious to find out who some of the people were that cashed out, uh, in this funding, uh, this, this tender offer, um, you know, uh, you know, presumably, uh, uh, benchmark and, and some of the other VCs, you know, have sold a, a significant portion of their shares. Uh, but, uh, I'll, I want to, I'd like to know who else, uh, decided to take the money and run. Cause obviously the, you know, the price that they paid for their shares much earlier, uh, in the, uh, funding process for Uber, uh, was much lower than 48 billion. So they're still making significant portion, yeah, know, significant the, profit on their, their investment. Are they having the, the gamblers regret like, Oh, we should have cashed out when it was much higher. At, at that 70 million now this this sort of resets the amount that they can they can take out of it they didn't really actually lose anything but when you look at sort of the trend um right now that there's there's 30 billion off the top um they're getting less less per share uh well i think you know, uh, the thing is up until now there wasn't really an opportunity for them to do that to cash out earlier you know this was the first you know major um you know transaction of existing shares in Uber, um, you know, since the company was founded in 2009. So, um, you know, and because the company hasn't gone private or hasn't gone public yet, you know, which right now they're, they're most, you know, uh, Dara Kasha Shahi, their new uh, CEO has talked about potentially going public, you know, doing an IPO in 2019. Um, you know, but up until now, you know, any investments, you know, in Uber were through issuance of new shares, you know, and the, you know, the way it works, you know, for those not familiar with it is, you know, early investors, you know, they, they pay a share price that is much lower, you know, it's based on a much lower valuation of the, the company. You know, and as the company grows, that valuation grows, the cost of buying shares for later investors is much higher. You know, so during the last couple of fundraising rounds in 2015 and 2016, 
you know, those were based on valuations of 55 to almost 70 billion. You know, so um, anybody that put in money at that time, you know, probably did not cash out uh, in this round or maybe, you know, cashed out only a small portion. Um, but, uh, you know, some of the early investors like Benchmark and 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 Jason, uh, you know, who were there in some of the very first fundraising rounds, like Jason was actually a, an angel investor in Uber. So, I mean, he was there right at the very beginning. Um, so, you know, his his shares, you know, I think I think the share price that SoftBank is paying is something like thirty three dollars a share. And the price that Jason paid for his stake, you know, was probably, you know, pennies per share uh, compared to what later investors were. Yeah. And I, I mean, even if you at this point, you go, OK, so the company's lost some money, but now I have this opportunity. To, like, you can make quite a bit of money. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's it's the, the gambling thing. I, I do wonder, to me, what seems more uh, applicable to the whole story or sort of more intriguing is it kind of resets the uh, expectation of how the company is going to run. And it's it's I, I hate the phrase, but it's almost like the grownups are now in charge. Um, because now you've got SoftBank investing and they're going to exert some control over their, their asset, right? They're, they're mm-hmm. like, we're not, we're not going to lose money. Um, especially since now that they've invested into Uber, they're not going to invest into, um, something like Lyft. Uh, and they also own stakes in other, um, mobility services globally. So yeah, I mean, SoftBank has a has a big stake in uh, Didi Chusing, the Chinese ride hailing company um, that dominates that market. Uh, they also own a big stake in um, Ola uh, in India and um, Grab, uh, a Southeast Asian uh, ride hailing company. Yeah, and and so I wonder if you know maybe at a certain point they they go you know what you guys are going to merge or or something i don't i don't know how much it, you know sort of control they can exert on that but it'll be interesting to watch and it'll be interesting to see that you know now that there's this you know big funder bought in um they're going to they're going to want it to to run well and efficiently and and maybe it'll sort of clean up some of the residual uh mess <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, pa- part of part of the deal that made this tender offer go ahead was making governance changes to the company. You know, one of one of the the things that made it so hard to get to oust Kalanick, uh was, you know, the structure they had. You know, was super voting shares. You know, so uh, the founders uh, Kalanick and um, I forget the other guy's name. Um, they had you know shares that got a lot more votes on the board of directors than. Um, uh, than other shareholders. Uh, and so basically, you know, un- until it became completely untenable for him to be on the board or, or to be the CEO anymore, uh, it, you know, it, it basically, you know, they, they had a very hard time firing him. Uh, and, you know, now, you know, I think the, as I understand it, the, um, the the deal with SoftBank, you know, eliminates those super those super voting shares or or greatly reduces them, and also increases the size of the board of directors, you know, so that you know, Cal, as part of the the original structure, you know, Kalanick got to basically appoint you know half almost half of the board uh, himself, you know, so he would appoint people that he knew would never oust him, uh, but now you know they're increasing the size of the board from eleven to seventeen people. And SoftBank is getting, I think, at least two board seats. 
they get to appoint two of the members of the board of directors. So it's, um, it's going to be interesting to see how things change now. You know, uh, Kalanick will definitely have a lot less influence on the company than he has had up to this point. Yeah. And that's sort of the, the danger of having that sort of figurehead, right? You get into the, the cult of personality and, and like Tesla, it's, it's kind of the same thing mm-hmm. where, you know, they're sort of making the company go by force of will. And at a certain point you look at it and you go, maybe there's not as much there there as, as uh, we're being led to believe or, uh, you know, as the rhetoric says, and that makes it, you know, a more dicey sort of long-term proposition. So uh, it seems like Uber's going to be around. I was curious about whether they were going to actually sort of fizzle um, given the, all the troubles they were having and um, you know, the sort of rise of Lyft because of that and and stuff, whether they were going to just face some pressure and and sort of just decline. seems like that's going to stabilize and we'll see Uber sort of make a, a more polished go of, being a business so well we'll we'll see see. you know i think think it'll stabilize in the near term um you know and they've they've still got you know they've got about five and a half billion dollars in cash to work with um but you know they also you know in the first half of this year they lost two and a half billion dollars and you know they're burning a lot of cash um so i'm i i remain unconvinced that um that they will survive in the long term as a standalone business and the same goes for Lyft. You know, I, I still think that they'll end up getting absorbed into some other company, probably an automaker at some point. Um, but we'll see. Yeah. It'd be interesting to watch from yeah. my car on the freeway. Where I'm not actually You're free stuck in traffic. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. Well, we've beaten that speaking, one a little bit. Speaking of, of uh, you know, cars, um, which uh, we nominally is what we do on this show. Uh, you want to jump to our interview? Yeah. So it, it, earlier this week, uh, Larry Valquette of uh, Automotive News, Automotive News. Um, wrote a, a column that was, it was sort of interesting. It's just like, is the market kind of dying for uh, collector cars because of a variety of reasons? And, and we cover all those reasons in the interview. So I don't want to. Um, go too far but you know probably the things you can imagine um are sort of driving a a pending change in and what uh sort of collector cars or vintage cars are are going to be and are going to look like and and uh how that's going to sort of shift um over the the next i don't know decade or two as as baby boomers sort of age out cash out and 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 punch out (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> um, so we talked to him a couple of days ago and, uh, we, you know, it was a good conversation and we'll have to have Larry back on to the actual podcast proper when he has a chance. So uh, I'll roll that now and we'll, we'll come back. All right. We're, we're here with Larry Villaquette from uh, Automotive News, Cranes, uh, all of those the automotive titles we love to read. <laughs> so uh, Thank thanks for joining us on uh, Wheel Bearings. Uh, uh, thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Uh, so Sam and I were talking this morning and we ran across uh, the uh, column that you wrote um, kind of thinking about what's going to happen to the collector car market in the future. And um, it, it seems like you're going to a dark place. You know, <laughs> maybe it's just 2017 how this has affected me in general, but uh, uh, you're not the only I, one. I, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm, I've spent a lot of time this year thinking about demographics uh, and about uh, baby boomers. I've spent my life having to think about baby boomers. We all have. They're the generation, <laughs> yeah, the generation right in front of me. Uh, not that I'm bitter. But, no, but, no, uh, okay. we are though. <laughs> I am. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, these they're still uh, they're they're still buying cars, buying more cars than they're selling, uh, and that's kind of a problem because those cars are going to go someplace. And I'm, you know, I was thinking about that, and and uh, actually, what got me thinking about this is. Um, uh, my mom died a long time ago, and, and my wife has been on me to try and get rid of some of the stuff that she, that was left from her estate. Uh, and I thought, you know, as I, and I saw that New York Times story about how you know how parents should should look at their stuff and that their kids don't want their stuff uh, the, that they've collected. And I thought, man, that's that's going to start playing out in cars. Right. Yeah. You actually uh, you made a note, and I, I wanted to ask you. Uh, so like would today's, um, collectible cars become, uh, Ladro figurines? And I was like, what the hell is a Ladro figurine? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> is that like a Hummel or like, I, don't, I just don't know. Yeah, well, it's, it's actually, it's pronounced Yadro. Yadro. Okay. See? Um, yeah. And it's a, uh, it's, it, and the reason I use that was something that my mother collected and was very proud of. Right. And now that my, I have I have five siblings and now we have these things and we're like, what in the hell are we going to do? With them? <laughs> you don't want them <laughs> collecting dust in your house? Exactly. Exactly. You know, she was, you know, God rest my mother. She was very proud of these things. But um, I just I don't know what to do with them. You know, they, they just they do not hold up well over time. And and uh, they're, they're the thought, beanie babies of your mother's age. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, they were something that she coveted when she was young. Yeah, I mean, we, they we, just don't we have, still have a bag full of Beanie Babies somewhere around here. I think that uh, managed to survive our recent move. And, you know, it's like, you know, what, what you know, I don't want to throw them in the trash, but, you know, what, what do we do with them? And, uh, you know, it, I fortunately, my wife has been pretty good about trying to make sure that I don't collect too much stuff or when stuff starts to accumulate that we, we start to clear it out and you know, because we don't want to be, you know, stuck with a whole bunch of, of things that, that we don't really have any use for. We don't want to collect just, just for the sake of collecting. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, that you, you know, you're, you're, you're writing about, um, collector cars and I was just reading, um, a piece that Rich Seppos wrote in uh, car and driver, uh, looking back at the um, the early years of the ten best, um, and he he did a um, a, a story. He he borrowed a 1983 Mustang GT um, from a Ford executive uh, whose name escapes me at the moment, but he's got a huge collection of Mustangs. Um, and uh, you know, go, going back and, and driving this this 34 year old Mustang, you know, that was in the the first the very first ten best list. There's, you know, um, there's there's so many of these cars that are out there now and cars last so much more. And like you said, you know, they're they're not getting driven. So many of these are, are you know, gathering dust in warehouses and garages somewhere because somebody thinks that they're, you know, that they're going to have huge value someday. And, and the thing is. Part of the problem is because the the market has exploded so much over the last ten or fifteen years in terms of valuations 
But do you think that it's now reaching a peak? You know, are are we are we starting to see a real decline in valuations of some of these cars? Well, you know what? We're we're probably if if I had to guess, and it's solely my guess, right? The way these the way these bubbles play out is you've seen some speculators come in. You've seen it uh, stretch into the uh, popular culture, right? With with uh, shows that what the what's the uh, the show the Dodge sponsors the monkey, grease monkey, right? Oh yeah, yeah the gas monkey, monkey garage. Gr- yeah, yeah, yeah. Gas monkey garage. Thank you. Uh, yeah. name, name, I, name <laughs> I blocked it out of my memory, yeah. but it, it came back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so you you've seen it you've seen it ex- extend into the popular culture, right? So then people start saying, "Hey, we can make some money here," and they start investing. You know, they don't know what they're doing. And then suddenly it's like Bitcoin, right? Right. Mm-hmm. You get a you get this giant ramp up because suddenly it gets into the popular culture, and then uh, and then the plug the plug gets pulled, and all all the money evaporates, and the thing that you spent twenty thousand dollars on suddenly is worth you know twenty five hundred bucks, and you've pissed away all that money. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, you know, it, it, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was I was just gonna say I th- I think that I if if I had to guess I think that's what's coming where we may actually see a little bit more rise, uh, but then when the fall comes it's gonna fall hard and the, and the fall is gonna come because of the demographics, right? You cannot beat <laughs> the demographic bomb that's gonna go off uh, when the baby boomers retire and they st- and they start dying and their uh, and their estates start going start coming up it, the values are not gonna stay up. Well, that's the interesting thing to me is uh, being a. I'm I'm just kind of stuck in the middle. I'm a child of of boomers. I'm I'm not millennials. I'm, I'm sort of solidly the tail end of of Generation X. And you know, looking at it, the the boomers' cars, you know, the the cars of the '60s and early early '70s, uh, the muscle cars mm-hmm. and 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 things were like my gateway drug. But I, I'm just I'm personally <laughs> not interested anymore. Um, you know, and it's 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 kind of like a, a cycle, right? Like the same thing happened to the greatest generation folks. Um, you know, nobody's nobody's looking for Model Ts any longer. Um, right. they're, they're, I mean, there's there's a few weirdos still, and that's fine. Um, but uh, you know, for me, it's it's uh, it's curious to to watch. But it's part of it's just going to be like you say, this is an enormous generation. And there's just not enough people to absorb it. And the, you know, the next enormous generation are their grandkids and uh, they just, they, they're not in that place right now. And and the other thing that's been floated over and over again is that uh, those kids who are, are the millennial generation, you know, the idea that, well, they're not interested in cars. And, and I don't personally, I don't buy that. What do you, how do you feel about that? Do you think that's accurate or, or just sort of a generalization that's that's absolutely not accurate? I think it's yeah. I think it's I think it's an overused generalization. I think that um, cars. I think they have the same interest in getting from A to B that that their predecessors have. Right. The difference is the debt. Right. Is is the the debt loads that they're carrying from from student loan debt because of the uh, boomers. Enormous. <laughs> because of, yeah, because of the boomers, right? They had the because best of everything. Want tax cuts, so yeah. they have to cut, you know, the deductions. For... <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Oh all right. yeah, yeah. We're doing <laughs> all the checks. We can't track. go there. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. But but the uh, uh, yeah. But you, you look at they're carrying such huge debt, and that debt doesn't go away. Right. You can't even right? dispatch and it with bankruptcy. Right. You can't wash it away. You have to pay it off. Uh, thank you, Joe Biden. That was him. That, that was he that did that. <laughs> 
but um, you, you know, it, it, they're carrying this huge debt, and they're carrying that debt out into their 40s and 50s. Uh, for God's sakes, and it you know you just you don't have disposable any disposable income that you have that you would put into this hobby is going to that. And as soon as you're done, you know, as soon as you're done paying your own debt, you're probably trying to put your kids through school. Yeah, yeah, right? and that's that's one of the trends that I, I've noticed now is is those those folks who supposedly aren't interested in cars. Well, guess what? They are moving to the suburbs, uh, more affordable suburbs, mm-hmm. as they have children, and they're they're buying vehicles. Um, it's it's hard. It's very hard. It's not easy like it used to be. Um, even with with you know, and debt is cheap now. You know, credit is once again uh, inexpensive. But they when you you don't have any available credit because you've got lots of student loans, it's it's still hard right. to get when you're in a certain place. Right. And you and what you're talking about here is a hobby. It's an expensive hobby, right? It's it's the same. It's the same kind of uh, mess that that is befalling golf uh, and other and other expensive hobbies that uh, uh, that I think is gonna is gonna happen in a big way. Now the the only saving grace is that there is visceral pleasure that that comes uh, from driving a classic car. You know, as long as that visceral pleasure is maintained. But you know, if you're if you're in a situation where that that bleak future where we're all in autonomous vehicles and God forbid that ever happens. Uh, <laughs> but if if we ever get to that point, uh, you know, where are you going to drive them? Yeah, I mean that's that's increasingly going to be a problem. It. You know, yeah, not not everybody can afford to, you know, to go out, you know, to take their their car out to a track, you know, to enjoy it. Um, I mean, you know, the with you know with the the automobile, you know. The use of horse horses as a, as a utility vehicle, you know, way to get around, you know, transformed into a hobby. And you know, there will still be cars around, you know, that we drive as a hobby um, when you know when when everybody else is going around in autonomous vehicles. But where are we going to do that? Are we going to be allowed? Are we even going to be allowed to do that on public roads? Or are we going to have to go to a track, you know, which is going to you know raise the the price of entry even more? Yeah. Yeah, and it's that's a scary thing. Now you could argue that look, you're not gonna you're not you're not gonna get to a point where you're uh, you could you could theorize right that uh, that autonomous vehicles are probably not gonna work on that well on rural roadways, right? Rural dirt roads, uh, places that you know the the vast portions of the United States that are that are so rural. There's just not a lot of VI infrastructure that you're going to be able to do there, right? Right. Uh, so maybe maybe you do it. You could drive there, but you know you're gonna you're gonna have fuel stations. <laughs> you know all yeah. all these things that are that are that looking out twenty, thirty, forty years. What happens? Yeah, that's that's true. It's I mean, not, it's, 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 it's much more difficult now to get. You know, uh, where, where do you go for feed for your horses and stuff? You know, it's not something good. <laughs> exactly. The general store in town's not there. Um, and yeah. last time I checked, Detroit, the Detroit livery stable is now is no more, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys are painting kind of a, a bleak um, picture, but I, I kind of wanted to also think about it from a, another perspective too. Like what, what actually... Like, what is a collector car anyway? Um, and, and is that necessarily bad that that 
goes away to a certain degree. Uh, and you, you touched on it. Um, you know, people speculating, buying things that they think are going to be worth huge amounts of money and then treating it like it's some sort of like highly enriched uranium and, you know, mostly letting it gather dust. So it, it just rots into this beautiful corpse. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, like the prime example, 78 uh, Indy Pace Car Corvette. It's so many people bought that you can find one that's perfect and they're worth nothing. Mm-hmm. Nothing. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. There's like no premium over a regular 78 Corvette. So um, that, that's it, it doesn't work. <laughs> you know, like it's a terrible investment. You, you're right. better if off. You make Bitcoin. it. Yeah. If, if, if you're making something to be a collectible, it's not going to be. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, you know, for for those of us that that really do appreciate these cars for what they are, you know, maybe this is a good thing that the market collapses, you know, and it makes these vehicles more affordable to us, at least, you know, at least through our, you know, expected lifespan. Yeah. You know, I mean, what ha- what happens after we're dead? You know, who cares? You mean, right. The well, kids can take care of themselves at that point. You know, Larry, when you when you wrote the piece, you talked to um, Haggerty. And one of the things uh-huh. that they noticed was that uh, afford, the quote unquote affordable uh, cars are sort of seeing a lot of activity in the market. And, uh, you know, again, from my own personal perspective, like part of that is because like, look at what these jerks have done to the price of, of stuff that used to be cheap, like 912s. You, you can't get an affordable <laughs> Porsche 912 anymore. That used to be like the you could get one for like five grand. Nice car. Uh, yeah. Now they're just they're, they're stupid. But also. You know, as that generation shifts, like I don't go to car shows much anymore because they're like sock hops and I just don't relate like uh, not not my thing. And if I see another 69 Camaro, I'm going to vomit. So for me, like a a car that is worthy of collecting and and maybe you can talk about what sort of like what's on your list. But for me, it's the stuff of my own youth, you know, weird stuff like, you know, a turbo Isuzu stylus or Peugeot 505, the Supras, Preludes. Uh, the Fox body Mustangs on that list, but you know, the stuff that's right now, just kind of like old cars. It's starting to appreciate. Certainly the Fox body is, but it's still weird. Yeah. And I, I tell you, for me, um, the, the, the cars of my youth, right. My first cars were, were, uh, all cars that were, <laughs> that were developed in the, in the wake of the oil crisis. Yeah. Right. And the, in the cars. wake of the emissions yeah. crisis. Oh, they sucked. <laughs> they sucked. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I wouldn't wish those on on my worst enemy. I don't know why anybody would collect those things. Right? Some of they them were, are interesting. Rattle buckets. Yeah. But oh. They're, I mean, they're interesting. You know, there's a certain amount of interest to something yeah. like an AMC they're, Eagle. Right. It's different. It's mm-hmm. you know, it, and and there there is a there is a small but dedicated group that that really appreciates the Mustang too, you know. I don't I, get those people. <laughs> All four of them, right? Yeah. All four of those I people. Mean, like John, especially John Clore, you know, Ford. But, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like you have to give them their due and say, yeah, it was the right car at the right time. It's just a bad car at all times. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's like, I mean, I I look at these cars like I, I wrote in the piece, right? I look at I look at these cars as the thing that appeals to me most is not driving them. It's, it's the art. It's the, um, you know, the, the physical appearance of these cars, like that 32 Chrysler Roadster that I mentioned, that is just, it to me is the picture of automotive perfection, right? Of that, of that era. 
mm-hmm. that maybe a doozy, right? Love mm-hmm. the Duesenberg, love the boat tails, the Auburn. I love that that era of automotive design. Um, the, you know, the stuff in the 40s, the, the 50s, even the 60s didn't do a lot for me. I, I gravitated more towards the stuff in the 30s. And it's you know it's it, it's not it's not fun stuff to drive, <laughs> you know. But it's uh, yeah. But it's, it's a, pretty it's a piece at. of rolling sculpture. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're looking at you're looking at it as a as a piece of of mobile art, uh, as opposed to a, a piece uh, as opposed to something for mobility. And you know, in that context, it makes a lot of sense. You know, and like any other piece of art, you know, it has whatever value you personally put upon it. Exactly. Well, you know, if you're going to frame it that way too, then the future's future is bright. Uh, if it's looking at it for the the design and the artistry, even just the the engineering that that's underneath it versus the actual driving, you know, you can still get a lot out of it, even if it is sitting in a collection or in a museum or, or something where you can actually get at it. Maybe that's mm-hmm. that's the best we can hope for. Is at some point there's there's interactive displays that that take us into these these cars that we can no longer use on the roads. Yeah, I mean, and maybe maybe it's a matter of you know some of these cars that are incredibly rare, but do have you know whether it's you know either an aesthetic or an engineering appeal to them. Um, you know, some of those will you know, they probably won't you know retain the peak of their value, but they'll they'll still have some incredible value to to some people going forward, just as any other piece of art always has. Um, you know, and maybe it's the you know the the more um, I hate to use not the word pedestrian is the wrong word for it, but but you know car, cars that have appreciated in value but have actually have a surprisingly large volume of them of still available. You know those are the ones that you know where the the market is more likely to collapse. You know some of the you know where there was you know tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Mustangs from the 1960s. You know that might be selling it you know in the upper tens of thousands of dollars now. You know those you know won't have won't retain that kind of value, but you know there's a lot of other a lot of other very special vehicles that will retain value. Yeah, and I think that's right. I mean, I, and a lot of that they don't have to be collector cars, right? Some of them I think retain value even you know decades on as used vehicles because of the reliability that they that was built into them mm-hmm. at the you know originally. And I think I think uh, for that. A vehicle like that, I'm using my own my own experience here. I look I look at the um, part of this is just the weirdness of who I am. For me, the the, for me the height of automotive technology was the was the Jeep uh, four liter inline six (laughs) that AMC developed. Yeah, or or the old Chrysler Slant six. You know, yeah, yeah, it's just you know. Exactly, you a vehicle that the body the body was going to rust away before that engine would stop working. Yeah, you know, and uh, to me that's that was as collectible. Recently, I bought uh, uh, last year I I bought a 2000 Jeep Grand Cherokee for my son as his first vehicle, sim in large measure because of the fact that it had that inline six in it, and I just I wanted to work on that engine again. I had, I had had like five of them. Uh, in years past, before they had phased out, and I went out and I specifically bought one of those just so I could work on that inline six again. So you you like exhaust manifold swaps? Exactly. 
<laughs> I mean, other than that, they're pretty uh, pretty tough to kill. Um, and I mean, that's that's more of a nuisance than a, than an actual reliability issue. But yeah, I mean, I think that that you know, we're we're we've gone from a dark place to to something something more positive here. And I'll I will find a Mustang too, so that I can start my uh, museum. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not going you know, for you. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, and you go back to cars like the Mustang too, right? If you ever look at how we idolize the like the '71 Challenger, yeah, right? beautiful design. That thing was a piece of shit to drive. Oh, and it was yeah. built poorly right. too. Uh, at that, yeah, time. it was was horribly built. It you know the the wheels were too far in. The body hung way over. It couldn't corner for crap. <laughs> you know, it rattled like crazy. Yeah, yeah. It was it? It was just it was it was not a good car. Well, fortunately, yeah, it, you know, we, we, we have some people in the world like your colleague, uh, Richard Truitt, that, you know, <laughs> like to take cars that were very poorly built to begin with and, and, and turn them into something them right. you know, that's actually quite manageable. You know, as, yeah, as he's Richard, Richard's actually sitting about 10 feet away from me right now. So <laughs> yeah, it's, I think like, really for the proper British car restoration experience, though, especially for the cars that he's restoring, though, he really needs to get pretty much drunk and not care about it <laughs> as you know, he paints. If, if, uh, I worked. I've worked with Richard now for about for uh, almost well, six and a half years, and the number of times that he has said to me, "This is my last British car I'm buying." <laughs> I swear to you. Yeah, he, I, I remember him saying that right after the last stag that he rebuilt. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that was and, three cars uh, ago. <laughs> right. He, he got rid of that for the the Honda S2000, and and I think the Fiero was in that interim. Oh, those as well. are too too reliable. Uh, Even the Fiero. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. And then the you know the ones he brings over right from England the uh, the rovers and the the yeah. uh, you know it's it's a trip it's been fun to watch yeah. I'm glad it's his wallet being drained not mine that's yeah. right <laughs> well all right well we should let you get to writing your uh, your article but I wanted to to say thanks for for joining us here for a little segment for uh, wheel bearings oh thank you both I appreciate you having me so it's mostly thought provoking I don't think we had any answers in that but <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm still going to try to I'm, what I do is uh, I look at Hemmings and I set the price to, you know, lowest uh, first or so lowest to highest. And I just look for the, the cheapest, most interesting cars and I'll send the link to my wife and she'll promptly text me back. No, <laughs> <laughs> which which is fine, because usually it's something that's completely impractical. And I it's like I can't put the kids in it and stuff and it'll catch on fire and, you know, stuff like that. So. Yeah, I, I, I you know, at your kid's age, you probably need to wait another three or four years until they can kind of fend for themselves a little more. Yeah. Yeah. But I do like weird cars and I have noticed the the rise in price of, of things like I uh, 10 years ago, I really wanted a 912 and you could have gotten a 912 for like six to fifteen thousand dollars in pretty nice shape. Now that's that's really not possible. So I don't know. We'll see how it that's goes. A, that's a damn shame. Yeah, that's okay. Gets me into more interesting stuff like, yeah, uh, you know, uh, eagles. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, like the eagle premiere. <laughs> Look, you get yeah, one I'm, not for, sure, like, I'm not sure interesting is the word I would use there. But. I think that was a great underrated car, but I don't want to let anybody I don't want to disabuse anybody of their notions because they'll make them all expensive. And you can get one for like three grand now in perfect shape if you can find it. Yeah. <laughs> The last of the uh, the last of the Renault uh, yeah. AMC. It, it was a good car. All right. 
uh, I, we could talk about something else with better cars. Um, the, the father of the, the rotary engine, another weird thing, uh, and I will occasionally look for RX-7s, um, Kenichi Yamamoto, uh, he, he passed away, and he was more than just the guy behind the rotary, but uh, he he's really why we have stuff like the, the RX-7. So, I, you know, that, to me, the Wankel engine is just fascinating, and Mazda has a really integral role in that. So I was, I was a little... I, I'm not sure I want to say I was sad at his passing. I mean, he's 95 years old. That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, it, it's, it's more of, you know, just a recognition that, you know, another one of the, the really interesting people in this industry uh, is gone now. Um, and, you know, he was, he was definitely a, a fascinating character. You know, he, he was one of those, uh, one of those people that kind of ha- um, went their own way. You know, he, uh, he led Mazda to, you know, march to the beat of a different drummer. I mean, he was, he was a very different drummer from most of the people in this industry. You know, um, that's why, you know, they continued and, and in fact, continue to develop rotary engines to this day when pretty much the rest of the industry has, has given up on, on Felix Wankel's concept. Um, you know, they, uh, Mazda, you know, launched their first rotary the, in the Cosmo Sport in 1967 um, and finally discontinued the RX-8 uh, just a few years ago. Uh, you know, and, you know, if you've, if you've never driven a rotary engine, I mean, there is nothing else like it in the, you know, in the world. It's, it's an amazing uh, type of engine. You know, it's so, so compact, you know, revs like mad, um, burns oil like mad most of the time. I, not, uh, no, early, early ones did. Yeah. So, yeah. but it was Mazda that actually solved that apex seal issue the best. I, I don't want to say that yeah, permanently, it's still an issue, but, um, it was really the sort of the 12A that figured out how to get that apex seal thing workable so that the things wouldn't just be, you know, mosquito foggers. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then, you know, Mazda, of course, was was the only company ever to uh, win the 24 hours of Le Mans with a rotary powered car. You know, they in fact, they were so far to date, they are the only Japanese brand to win. Uh, Le Mans outright, you know, in 1991 with the 787 with a four rotor Wankel, which is just a crazy sounding engine. If you've ever heard one, it's just unreal. Yeah, I mean, I just such an elegantly simple design that that Wankel engine. Um, and yeah, they have they have some issues, <laughs> yeah. but it's just it's fascinating. And the, the way they operate, um, it, it's just you know, some of this stuff, I'm surprised they're ever going to overcome, you know, like that sort of long uh, combustion chamber. That's really difficult for emissions because it's, you know, it'd be hot in the center and coal at the ends. And it's just just really you you can only clean that up so much, uh, you know, um, but it's it's just this, this alternate technology that's in. Now we're seeing this proliferation of two liter turbocharged four cylinders. I kind of want something different. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, you know, the thing is, you know, even, you know, long after, you know, decades after uh, Yamamoto um, retired, you know, Mazda is still doing things a little different, you know, and now they've got the Sky Active X engine, you know, the the spark controlled um, compression, uh, com- compression, uh, yeah, uh, combustion. Combustion ignition. Yeah, combustion engine. Yeah. Com- compression, um, compression ignition, right? It's yeah. uh, whatever so, words. Anyway, you know, the, that's coming out um like twenty uh, I guess 
probably possibly uh, late next year, or early 2019 in the new Mazda three. Uh, you know, imagine if you could take that concept that they developed for that one and apply it to a Wankel. And I, I would be shocked if they're not working on doing exactly that, you know, having that, that homogeneous charge in there, you know, that could actually be a way to solve, you know, the Wankel's emissions and emissions issues. And especially if you use it, you know, as they've talked about, uh, as a range extender for an EV, you know, now, you know, starts to get, things start to get very oh, interesting. Yeah. So, Cause it's so lightweight. So, yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of possibilities for that. You know, it's lightweight and it's also tiny. Yeah, uh, you know, which, which makes it much easier to package. Well, and so yeah, I mean, I think I, I don't think I don't think we've seen the end of the Wankel engine just yet. No, and it has its uses. It actually has a lot of industrial uses. It's used out mm-hmm. on pumps and stuff just because it is it is small and and uh, powerful. It, it's not as torquey. Um, puts out plenty of horsepower <laughs> generally. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't think we've seen the the end of it. It's certainly it's it's something that's out there. Um but, you know, uh the future is 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 before us. We'll see. I would love to see another Mazda with a rotary. Um just just it's, it's just a cool engine, man. It's it's like, you know, we don't have so many crazy engines anymore. Like even even the normal stuff like the Buick Nailhead that's kind of a neat engine that nobody thinks about anymore, but look at the valve train. And then you go, Oh, wait a minute. That looks an awful lot like the valve train on the 426 Hemi. We, because the same person <laughs> engineered it. They went from Buick to it's just like all of that sort of fascination stuff. It's been long figured out, but it's not quite as prevalent on engines anymore. Like they've, it's really settled law. Like we know it works and we have the computing power to sort of just force stuff to work now too. So, yeah. I don't know. So, uh, a, a big cheers to uh, to the late Kenichi Yamamoto for for trying something different. Yeah, well, and it wasn't just the the rotary either. Like he actually convinced them. Mazda was not one of the sort of pillars of the the automotive uh, landscape in in uh, Japan. They, no, not at all. In fact, you know, they were only building trucks when he first uh, when he first joined uh, the company right after World War Two. And, you know, he he helped um, develop, you know, their first cars, the you know, starting with the R360 in 1960. Um, and, you know, was there until the I think he retired in the early 90s. Or early late 90s, 80s. or late 80s, something like that. Yeah. But, I mean, you have him to thank for the the uh, the Miata as well. Um, the yeah. Cosmo, <laughs> you know. Yep. Um, because I, I guess it's, it's it's when you look into sort of how Japanese industry sort of stood back up um, after World War Two, there was a lot of um, tight control over like which industries were going to to be you know who was going to be in which industries and um, they the the government basically decided like we're going to have you know Toyota and whatever. Nissan. Yeah, Toyota, Nissan, and, and Isuzu as the, the, the automakers. And so for anybody else to get in there, you had to be very convincing. So apparently he was pretty convincing. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, people like uh, like Kenichi Yamamoto and, and Sokira Honda, uh, you know, they, they both, you know, they both had a huge impact on the both the Japanese and the global auto industry. All right, moving right along. What else? Um, so well, we could do the best of, right? The best yeah. of. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the end, end of the year, so you know, what, what was your favorite uh, favorite cars you drove this year? Uh, Hellcat Challenger, uh, Hellcat Charger, and uh, 
Mustang Shelby 350. GT350. Okay. Fair choices. I mean, yeah. I, certainly a thing. I'm not yeah. like a super muscle car guy, but the, the Hellcat is that's bonkers and such oh, an yeah. old no, car. It's, it's it's brilliant. You know, to, to to take something like that and make it work as well as it does, you know, is that's that's a sign of some pretty good engineering capabilities. Yeah. And so the thing, too, like the engine is certainly one of the, the reasons why that car was so entertaining. The chassis um, modifications, you know, they they certainly stiffened it up in, in the front, at least. Uh, there's There's got to be extra bracing and, and stuff because it felt really, really solid uh, rides and handles really really well for a car that enormous and heavy um so it's it's just a whole package like i would i would love to see what the hellcat chassis would would be like without necessarily the hellcat just give me the rt engine i don't the the hellcat engine's entertaining but you <laughs> you never ever use it and right. to its full potential and it not, not on public roads anyway no and it it's so much power that you will absolutely wind up in huge trouble. It's a car that's, it's great at like seven tenths, eight tenths. You get to nine, it's going to start to get sloppy, you know, when you get to nine tenths and, and you don't want to be in that car when it's sloppy. Like it's, it'll be a handful. Um, as good as it is, like it's a big sedan, it's heavy. <laughs> Just don't approach and, the limits. And, and, you know, there's, you know, there's only so much rubber on the thing and with that much power and torque, you know, you, you need to have traction. Yeah, and it like I just it, it came with hype Z rated tires and so all of my favorite things. <laughs> so, uh, and the the Mustang was just like uh, uh, that flat plane V eight is just crazy. I I love 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 that car to death, and I don't love the normal Mustang quite as much. I I, I respect it. Uh, still feels kind of plasticky and stuff inside and just whatever. But the 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 GT three fifty with that flat plane. V8 is, is also appropriately bonkers. Yeah. So what was yours? So I, I, I put together a, a gallery on uh, Forbes uh, last week of uh, about a dozen of my favorite cars from this year. And they were kind of all over the map. You know, they ranged from the Chevy Bolt, which, you know, I think is an absolutely brilliant car, you know, for, you know, as an EV that, you know, can go, you know, if you drive it uh, in low mode all the time with max regen, you can get almost 300 miles of range out of this thing. And it's immensely practical. You know, it's roomy for, for four adults and you've got cargo room and everything, you know, up to, you know, at the opposite end of the scale, um, you know, the Acura NSX and the, uh, the Alfa um, Giulia Quadrifoglio, you know, both, you know, the you know the quadrifolio in particular you know is very much on the the bonkers end you know and, and uh, totally appropriately so as a, as another product of uh, Fiat Chrysler automobiles you know with with a Ferrari inspired twin turbo V6 you know and then you know the NSX you know as a twin turbo V6 with a three motor hybrid system uh, you know and then in between you know cars that are you know vastly more uh, practical, but still incredibly fun to drive, like the Honda Civic Type R, and 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 of course the Miata, uh, and the Fiat 124. You know, so it was it was kind of all over the map. You know, I t- I tried to pick cars that I thought were were particularly both interesting to drive. You know, and and interesting. Um, interesting in in their own right. You know, in trying to do something different in the segments in which they live. Yeah, I've seen a lot of really effusive praise for the Julia and I get it, but I'm also a little baffled by it because everybody's driving the quadrifolio. 
Yeah, of well, course I've, it's I've great. Got, yeah, well, <laughs> I've, I've got the, the two liter coming uh, in February. So, you know, be able to try out the, the you know, the, the, the more pedestrian version and uh, we'll see if it's still as good. You know, from from what I've, I've heard from people, it's that the two liter is also really good. Uh, you know, obviously not as crazy as the, the quadrifolio, um, you know, with only about half as much power. But, you know, still a very good car overall. And the question is, you know, will will it be enough to overcome, you know, kind of the, the few flaws in the quadrifolio that, <laughs> you know, that we talked about when we had Casey on the show a few weeks back? Yeah. Uh, uh, but, you know, I think, you know, there, there's there's so many really good cars right now, um, you know, that depending on, on what your needs are, you know, for, for transportation, I mean, you can find needs or, and, or wants, um, you know, you can, you can find something that, that fits your, your lifestyle that, you know, that I, I think you won't be disappointed with, you know, from, you know, the Lexus LC 500 to the Kia Niro, um, you know, there's, there's something for everybody now. Yeah, that's, that's true. I, I do feel like I need to back away and, and sort of get over my ennui. Um, you, you know, you you spend enough time in sort of everybody's new cars, you get a little bit numb to it. Um, so then the ones that really stand out are the exceptional ones or the weird ones or, or, or you know, whatever. Uh, everything's pretty good, but <laughs> but I still I like the. But there but there are, you know, even amongst a really good crowd, there are there are standouts. Yeah. And I do. I like the standouts. And and yeah. um yeah, I mean, it's it's a solid list. I, I like I like the standouts on your list. That's good. Uh, I haven't yet driven uh, a Julia, so I'll have to get Chrysler on that. I'll start pinging our uh, our press rep for them and be like, "Where is it? Get it up here." <laughs> Maybe when 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 the weather gets warmer. Yeah, well, um, we have the. Yeah, um, I've got both a Julia and the Stelvio coming um, next month or in in February with uh, both of them uh, in two liter turbo form. So nice. We'll see how those do. Yeah, we have the uh, the Winter Vehicle of New England official Winter Vehicle Award that we're we're judging soon in February. So uh, if any listeners are automaker uh, product reps and you want to have your cars up here so that we can vote on them, you should get them in now. And I'll just leave it at that. Uh, all wheel drive. Well, Alpha, Alpha should definitely have the Stelvio in there. Though. Yeah, I and I, they may. I, I'm you know not in constant communication with the fleet guys up here, but uh, if if. Uh, somebody's interested, they should just hit me up. Otherwise, uh, they they probably already know what to do. But um, yeah, we actually have snow and super Arctic weather right now. So it's going to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. And I mean, I think with that, we've uh, we have. Yeah, I think I think we've uh, we've wasted enough of your time for this week. Yeah, I, it's productive time. It's <laughs> what else would you be doing? This is hey, I mean, when, when you've got a, when you've got a three hour daily commute, you know, right. You might as well listen to this. Exactly. What are you, you going to listen to NPR and get stressed out? That's or, right. You know, Just listen to us and have some have some fun. You know, one one final thought that I think is very interesting. Do you ever look at the the presets that when your press cars come and and just sort of marvel over who sets them and, and like the, the sort of the <laughs> taste of on the, the radio? People? Yeah. Um, I I do occasionally. I I, I try not to uh, dwell on it too much. Um, I'm, yeah, yeah I, I, I'm not I judging. I can't, I can't. I can't say that I'm. I'm surprised at a lot of what I see on there. <laughs> I mean, I generally uh, see like who's at least who you know who who many of the people are that you know are actually doing the deliveries. Um, right. But, um, yeah. I mean, you know, there's 
there's some that I would, you know, as soon as I get them, you know, I, I switch them over to something else. Oh yeah. I mean, the, the first, first thing I do when I get a car, you know, is pair my phone over Bluetooth and right. if it's got Android auto, get that set up. Um, you know, and then I pretty much ignore whatever else was on there. Yeah. Well, I could always tell like which fleet driver dropped off the car too. Cause there's this one that like yeah, every, true. every time I start it up, it's on Fox news on XM. And then yep. there's, you know, got a couple of those. Yeah. And I'll look like watercolors is always one of the stations that's programmed. <laughs> and I'm like, who, who listens to watercolors? Like, okay. Um, yeah, one of the big local NPRs. I can always tell when the car came out of the, like the guys in Connecticut had it because all of the stations are Connecticut frequencies that don't match mm-hmm. up to Boston, but I know what the stations are. And sometimes, you know, some of the systems actually have like the call letters that'll store. So <laughs> like start it up. Or one like, of the sports radio stations. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sports radio is big too. Um, yeah. It's, it's just interesting and no judging. It's just, it's curious and it's kind of funny. So that, that's yeah. all. Um, all right. With that, <laughs> I think we're done. And that's that's the beauty of, of using Android Auto and listening to uh, listening to podcasts and, and my own music there you know, is that nobody else ever gets to see that. Yeah. And, you know, it stays it stays with my phone. You, you are you remain a man of mystery. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Let's go we'll to see you uh, next year. Yeah. 2018 uh, Excelsior. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.